0: Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussion held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in May of 2016. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. James K. Galbraith. Dr. Galbraith is a world-renowned economist and son of the famous economist John Kenneth Galbraith. Dr. Galbraith earned his bachelor's from Harvard and his master's and Ph.D. from Yale, all in economics, of course. From a young age, James worked within the U.S. Congress, working on policy. He eventually worked his way up to the executive director of the Joint Economic Committee role. He was the former chair of the Economists for Peace and Security, a group of economists that focus on peace and international security. He is the director of the University of Texas Inequality Project and is the managing editor at Structural Change and Economic Dynamics. He is also the Lloyd M. Benson chair at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, where he currently teaches. Together, we discussed global inequality, how China was influenced by the ideas of Henry George, and even dunked the efficient markets hypothesis. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode.
1: Uh, Professor Galbraith, thanks for joining us on Smart Talk. Uh, It's a series now that we have over 30 uh, episodes. Uh, Yesterday we did uh, Lord Adair Turner. But we'll start off by saying, I don't think what's going on today would have been any surprise to your father, based on his writings. Essentially, uh, he kind of called the situation as it was evolving. He was kind of marginalized, you know, by the neoclassicals and i think his time has has reappeared and of course you're you're a disciple and a, a more quantitative disciple it looks like than than your dad but what would you say about that would you how would your father be reacting to what he he'd be observing today in your opinion Well, oh, i think
2: he'd be in cash that would be the sensible thing uh, when i called him up in uh in in uh, october of 1987 to uh uh, find out how he was doing on that day when the stock market fell by a third. He's, he said, James, is that you? I said, yes, Dad. He said, not to worry. I've been in cash for three weeks. Uh, so there, there we are. Uh, this, these, uh, uh, financial instability and the persistent and repeated thought uh, that uh, that the. Uh, Capital markets are going to be, are, are now stabilized and everything is going to go along smoothly is something that my father always saw through from the very early stage of his professional career. He was never taken in by it, and uh, he wouldn't have been now either.
1: Okay. Well, we get into right, to this financial crisis. Of course, I would argue and other people would argue that strong real estate speculation, unequal incomes, and... And perhaps foreign trade, all mixed together, with a catalyst for bringing it to a head at this at this particular time. And of course, as 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 Georgists or neo-Georgists, uh, we're kind of anti-monopoly, basically, is, is the position we take. In any place that we see monopoly building up, we'd like to tax it down to a reasonable uh, amount. But in your opinion, the real estate speculation, the ability to monopolize strong financial cities like new york london where things start to congeal and center promise enormous monopoly profits which the banks take advantage of they'll lend against that kind of real estate and of course as long as you have a fiat currency or no real backing or or the ability to create credit almost infinitely this this result is going to go on and go on and go on your your take on that well you know if you if you read the uh, the passage
2: on the Florida real estate bubble of 1926 and the great crash, uh, the, uh, you realize of course that, that this, there's nothing new uh, under the sun uh, and it, it's clear that uh, speculation in real estate and in associated financial instruments, for example, mortgages and their uh, and their derivatives was a driving force behind the great disaster of 2007-2009. What's happening in the financial markets right now, I can't say I'm I'm entirely sure exactly where uh, the exposure is. Uh, The one possibility is that we're looking at uh, derivative exposure on on emerging markets. Uh, That will emerge and we will find out in the current state of of events when when there is a, a, a debacle and some large player, uh, once again, discovers that they, they, they can't meet their commitments.
1: Let me go back to uh, some of the work you've been doing in recent years on income inequality and 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 that kind of topic, which you're studying quite heavily. If we go back to, let's say, the 70s and we, we pick it up, the United States policy becomes one of free trade, you know, uh, unlimited. Uh, chasing low wages, uh, outsourcing lots of job opportunities to low and middle income earners, eventually forcing them to to borrow to make up the slack, Uh, you can kind of build a case as to what happened. So there are many, many ways you might argue that income inequality was a a driver of the resulting uh, uh, problems.
2: Uh, I, that's not the argument I make exactly. Uh, the argument I would make is that the income inequality that we observed, the rise in income inequality, was a result of the lending behavior of the financial sector. It was not a result of the borrowing behavior of lower income households. If you go and look at the literature of what actually happened uh, in uh, subprime mortgage markets, is you had armies of, of mortgage brokers who were pressuring low-income homeowners to take out loans uh, that were flagrantly fraudulent, which were, for example, you'd, you'd get, uh, 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 let's say, a low-income African-American homeowner in a neighborhood in Cleveland would take out a $5,000 loan to repair a kitchen, uh, and it would be flipped and refinanced six times in the course of uh, a year or two, it would end up being a $20,000 loan, and she would lose the house and uh, wouldn't get the kitchen repaired anyway. So this, this kind of thing was a, re- repeated hundreds of thousands of times. It was the behavior of the lenders uh, that was at fault. And what you see in the income inequality statistics is the rise in the incomes generated by the fees on those mortgage instruments which, of course, were paid to the loan originators and then to the people who securitized the loans. So it's very much, uh, the causality very much runs from the behavior of the active agent, which is the financial institution, to the inequality numbers.
1: I'm aware of your uh, income work that the top end caused a a real unequal distribution. If you you took away the top end, it wouldn't look so bad. But the very fact, and I, I get that. I mean, if you take... You take all that was made in finance and and real estate and speculation, it it, it adhered to a few counties, really, in the United States, where all the money got concentrated. And, of course, that makes the income distribution look like it does today. But the outsourcing and getting rid of jobs and so forth, I would argue, increased the pressure. Maybe didn't make it as bad as it is today, but it all culminated in people becoming more and more desperate, looking for ways to work harder. It may have made people susceptible to the pressure they
2: were getting under, uh, getting from the from the loan originators. So that's that's an aspect of it. But there is this argument from Reguram Rajan in particular, his book Fault Lines, which I take an exception to, which holds that it was simply a lack of education on the part of the low-wage population of America that led them to believe they could make up with lending what they lost in wages. And I don't I don't buy that at all. What what what, what happened? You have very sensible people uh, who were under a lot of pressure, but who also were given fraudulent instruments. They were they were they were duped effectively by criminals, uh, and that is something that was uh, uh, that was uh, brought to the attention of the Federal Reserve and other bank regulators as it was going on. This was not a secret to consumer advocacy agencies. They had their opportunities to testify before the Fed but their testimony was ignored. Uh, and so the, uh, uh, the basically the government turned a blind eye to what was happening in these communities, and the result was a very highly predictable disaster uh, of, on a colossal scale. Uh, so that's, that's the way, again, I think that's best to frame it. We, it cannot be really analyzed except by understanding that there was a large element of, uh, of, of fraudulent and criminal activity associated with the entire uh, episode. <clears throat>
1: Okay. Well, that begs the question. I want to go back to another part of that, but on your point there, why wasn't there any enforcement? Why was it allowed to slide? Whereas, for example, in the savings and loan uh, debacle, there were prosecutions, probably over a thousand. Why then and not now? Oh, I think that's reasonably straightforward. The uh, authorities in charge
2: were inclined to believe that after their time in government was over, they'd go back to work in the financial sector, which, as you can see, they have done. Uh, and so they were not inclined to uh, uh, lean too hard on, on on their both past and future colleagues. What was different in, 19, in the late 80s and early 1990s was that this whole the savings and loan uh, catastrophe was handed off to a group of competent and dedicated Prosecutors, uh, investigators, litigators, FBI agents, uh, criminologists, and they uh, took it uh, their responsibility, their public service responsibility, seriously, uh, and they went and did the job that had to be done. They carried out uh, the investigations, they brought in the indictments, they took people to trial, and they won the convictions. Uh, but they weren't expecting to go off and work in the savings and loan industry afterwards, and of course none of them did, and many of them suffered. Uh, you know, a good deal of of, of career uh, difficulty. After all, they didn't rise into into the high reaches of Wall Street. Uh, there were honorable people uh, who did their did their job, and that was not the case uh, in the investigation of the and uh, the following up on the debacle of, of, of the last decade. Uh,
1: just going back to uh, foreign trade and outsourcing, uh, of because you're arguing that it didn't create. The unequal distribution of income that we see now because the top end has been added to that income distribution through through the shenanigans we've just talked about but the trade balances and the buildup of chinese the chinese need to to buy our security so that the in effect we could finance the purchase back of their products were was i think a big part of in enlarging the credit pool with which the current people could Lends to real estate and mortgages and so forth. So there's an indirect causation that if it didn't hit the income distribution directly, it allowed the top end to finally come back on the income distribution and to make it what it is today. This is not an argument
2: that I find terribly persuasive. Ben Bernanke testified to the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission that there was a connection between a, a glut of savings in China. Meaning their pileup of uh, their, their ownership of U.S. Treasury bonds and bills, uh, and the uh, and the, the 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 mortgage debacle. Uh, the reality of the situation is that the two phenomena are really quite separate. The Chinese acquire U.S. Treasury bonds and bills because they have otherwise they would have cash reserves from their trade surplus, uh, and the mortgage tobacco was the artifact of uh, activity that was entirely inside this country, which could have occurred with or without the the Chinese. In a world without the Chinese, there's no reason to believe that it would have been any different. It was a a, a cabal, if you like, a coalition of of captive government regulators uh, and highly aggressive uh, and uh, fraudulent criminal financial operators Uh, Who were behind the uh, what happened in the mortgage uh, uh, mortgage uh, securitizations of the of the uh, period from the late 1990s to 2007? I don't see that that, 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 that there's not a hidden Chinese hand behind that. That's that's a made in America phenomenon.
1: I wasn't suggesting that. I was just suggesting that their buildup of reserves, you know, goes into our banking system and or our, our government banking money creation system and allows. You know a more uh facile way to create or easy way to create credit i don't think so i really honestly don't think so i think that when the
2: chinese take what 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 is basically a cash income as a result of a sale of a product in the united states and the chinese exporter converts that to rmb and turns the the us dollars over to the people's bank of china the people's bank of china simply moves that into a securities account which is an interest-bearing account, because that, they'd rather have interest than not have interest on it. Uh, and it sits there. I don't see how that has any any material effect on the availability of credit in the United States. It's not as though they're lending anything back to the American banking system, and it's not as though the American banking system would need to take out a loan in order, from the Chinese in order to make a loan to
1: an American who's trying to buy a car. Uh, going back to your work on... Income distributions, uh, if I a- asked you would, it, would a, an economy grow faster, if the income distributions were fairer or or let's say more like uh, Northern European uh, economies than like ours or like South American economies, That, as a generalization could we say that in macro terms an economy would grow faster because of that or does unequal distribution of income have any macro effects? I
2: I would argue, and I have argued, uh, that a more equal distribution has a couple of important macro effects. For one thing, it's associated with lower rates of unemployment, for very straightforward reasons. Uh, When you have a very unequal uh, income, wage distribution in particular, uh, the... uh, uh, There is a strong tendency for people who are stuck in the low-wage jobs to go hunting for better jobs, because there's a big differential, and this is associated with higher rates of unemployment. You can see that very clearly in the data, whether you're looking at the U.S. or Europe or China, looking at patterns of migration, they're driven by large amounts of inequality. That's clear. Uh, So that, I think, is an important reason to maintain uh, a reasonably disciplined, compressed differential in wages. the argument that there's a, a relationship between the level of inequality at a given time and the rate of growth of the economy is not one that I, technically, I think it's, it's, it withstands much technical scrutiny. Uh, their rates of growth go up and they go down. Uh, levels of inequality, re- relative levels of inequality, they tend to be fairly stable across countries over time. So I find it very hard to... to, to uh, make a clear-cut relationship
1: there. The European financial crisis, it's linkage to the U.S. financial crisis. Obviously, there's a linkage. And of course, they're in the same boat with us with excess debt being paid down and constraining their economies. I mean, you've argued and pointed this out, uh, especially in the Greek situation. Uh, how do we get out of this particular impasse in, in, in both the United States and Europe, where essentially you have now a debt overhang from the recent financial crisis. Uh, austerity is the name of the game by the establishment. And you're sitting on tremendous unemployment and it's manifested by the Bernie Sanders uh, uh, or Trump candidacies. How do you break that gridlock? How would you have broken it for Greece? Well, the great debt needed to be restructured.
2: It was not going to be paid and it is not going to be paid. But the crucial question, uh, I was associated with the Greek finance ministry for a number of months, early part of this year, and the crucial prior question was not the debt, which already had a fairly long uh, grace period before major payments would would become due again. Uh, It was with the terms of the austerity uh, policies that were being imposed on Greece. Um, And there's a rigid connection between the power of the creditors and their desire to enforce a certain ideo- body of ideological doctrine on the debtor uh, was the immediate problem facing the Greek government. They were being forced to sell off all public assets. They were being forced to cut wages, to cut pensions, to cut in public employment. Uh, they were being forced to raise value-added taxes to you know, really extraordinary levels. And when they finally capitulated and started doing all of these things, of course, they First of all, the Greek economy is not recovering. And secondly, there is an increasing body of popular resistance, as there there should be. Uh, This is a government, as a debt collection agency, is not a viable form of government. And so, what has the basic principle that applies here, which is that a debt that cannot be paid will not be paid, Uh, and uh, what ends up is what you get instead is a political struggle over uh, who is going to bear the loss. At the moment, it's entirely being put on the Greek population, which it's fair to say was the least responsible party. Uh, The Greek political class uh, was responsible, the European political class, the European financial class, the United States were all responsible for making this mess, and they're all trying very hard to avoid bearing the burden.
1: But how do you move the economies uh, forward? If you keep it like this, it's pretty clear from a macro point of view there's not going to be any growth. Why would anyone want to really invest in in a real economy and under compressed uh, a compressed debt situation like this yeah I would put it I would put it this way for about 30 years
2: since the early 1980s we in this country have sustained episodes of growth one that peaked in 2000 in 1999 2000 one that peaked uh, in 2007 uh based upon credit extension the 1990s episode was Obviously, a business expansion, uh, information technology played an important role in it. Uh, The uh, expansion that happened over the 2000s was a largely real estate-based, largely this kind of fraudulent mortgage finance, uh, a debacle in the making, uh, and it collapsed. Well, since that time, we have not seen uh, anything remotely approaching strong growth from the financial sector. Nor will we. Nor will we. It is not something that the financial sector is prepared to repair, uh, because, among other things, they haven't got any clients who are prepared to borrow on a strong and sustained basis. So what they're doing and what they have been doing fairly obviously is reaching for yield in the so-called emerging markets. They've been playing around in commodities. That has now collapsed. uh, they surely have been selling derivatives of various kinds, and we'll see where that exposure is when when some some major failure uh, hits which could happen at any time. Uh, so uh, but we're not going to get growth out of a financial sector structured the way we the one way that one that we presently have is structured. so uh, first of all let's let's stop expecting this. There is a tendency to say, well, the Federal Reserve can fix it with let's say uh, negative interest rates. that's was in the press in the last day or so. This is a a very uh, far-fetched view. Uh, The only way to fix it is, first of all, to find an alternative way to support income and purchasing power, and secondly, to restructure the financial sector so that you can begin to bring it back into the economy uh, as a constructive contributor rather than simply as a predator. Now, getting getting the, 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 the purchasing power in place, the first thing I would do, is raise the minimum wage. The $15 minimum wage would put purchasing power in the hands of people who actually would use that purchasing power. That would be a very sensible first step and one that could be enacted
1: at any time. Your, da- your, your dad would have probably advocated a massive program of construction of public goods, infrastructure, and the like, which he did early on. I believe in, uh, I don't know if it was the new industrial state or... The Affluent Society, one of those two books, I can't re- recall, but he would have intervened now, I think, and recommended basically a government injection of money, perhaps directly in start infrastructure projects and, and create demand outside of the box that we're in. Would that be a fair assessment of what your, your dad would have recommended?
2: You know, my father certainly recommended uh, investment in public goods and services in, uh, in the 1950s. Uh, in my own view. Uh, is weighted towards services rather than goods. Uh, We put a lot of money into things like roads and bridges uh, and some other useful things with the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act uh, in 2009. I'm all in favor of that, but I think it's fair to note that the jobs that were created were not, first of all, they're not permanent jobs because they're construction jobs. The project is done, the jobs then move on. And secondly, that given the way the construction industry is now, they use a lot of imported uh, labor. So a lot of immigrant labor comes into that, which is not, in my view, ideal. Uh, I think that what we need in our society is a lot more investment in, uh, in, in let's say, human services, caring activities, and education, and healthcare, and elder care. We have an aging population. Uh, and we should be providing institutions, institutional settings in which people are can find stable, long-term jobs, meeting the needs of the population that we have. That's the way to, to bring to bring the needs of the society into contact with the uh, with, with with the desire for jobs. Um, and you know, of course, that also reflects the fact that the labor force is, is not just a labor force of 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 young. Uh, Mostly male construction workers. We have a lot of people who don't fit that category who still need uh, employment. So I think that's that's part of it. The other thing I think my dad and I would would both be yeah. advocating is that you know, we we should be putting a good larger share of our um, common resources into um, let's say into art, a- into culture, into music, into Uh, and to building up the kind of society that we would like to have, a society which is enriching in all kinds of ways, into the environment, extremely important, Um, and those things were perhaps less salient in the 1950s than they are today.
1: Well, you know, the system seems to have a tendency to create more and more monopoly. It, It looks like competitive capitalism almost by definition morphs into monopoly capitalism, and of course with uh, control of land and resources where you can extract rents, all of this seems to pyramid into a stronger and stronger monopoly position. So the very people who have control of these monopolies are least likely to want to give up those monopoly profits for, for social projects that, that you've that you've described. Let me
2: suggest that we have a very well-developed way of dealing with this in this country, which we've been using for a century, uh, and that is, estate and gift taxation. One of the things that we uh, uh, need to recognize about any system which is based upon private enterprise is that the battle to control inequalities is never won completely. Inequalities are always being created. We're always going to be having new generations of um, of tycoons who are created out of thin air, really, out of the capitalization of the... Of the expected future profits of a Google or a Facebook or whatever it is, with the particular particular uh, enthusiasm of the day, including the enthusiasm of the financial sector, that's how we get these big fortunes. What what we need to do is to move them as quickly as possible uh, back into circulation, where they're where they're being spent down uh, for the benefit of the larger community. Recognizing those fortunes are not. They're not the creation of a single individual. They're a creation of the entire society. And okay, in the in the in the scheme of things, an individual gets to enjoy them for a while, gets to reap some influence and prestige out of that. But uh, it should be the case that we expect that they pass that on very quickly uh, into some activity uh, which is supportive of the larger uh, society, and that's what already happens to a very considerable degree. I'm looking out my window at uh, what is a state university campus here at the University of Texas at Austin, and I can see just within the catch of my eye uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of construction that was financed substantially by uh, this kind of uh, of, of, uh, recycling of, of accumulated fortunes, much of it in oil and gas, obviously, here, but in many other fields as well. Uh, and that's true of every every university and every hospital and every uh, cultural institution in the country, practically speaking. If we accelerated that activity and we made it more uh, effective than it is, if we closed the loopholes that allow people to evade uh, those th- those tax mechanisms and pass things on, creating political dynasties. If we controlled the way in which the some people use abuse this in order to create large tax-exempt entities that are of, of uh, heavy influence on the political system. Uh, if we accelerated the rate at which the, the, the gifts were, had to be spent out, currently the, the expenditure rate is really very low, uh, then we would have, uh, I think, a
1: workable, uh, a, a substantial step toward a workable solution to this problem. So that I can infer from your statement that you don't believe in un- unregulated unregulated capitalism, or that efficient markets will solve all the problems of equity that you believe that a certain amount of regulation is necessary.
2: I don't believe in the tooth
1: fairy either. Uh, The the,
2: uh, efficient markets hypothesis is basically a tooth fairy hypothesis. Let me me, uh, uh, put it to you this way. Economic systems are like biological systems they're like mechanical systems they require a source of energy they require a re- a, a, a a mechanism of regulation otherwise they break, they break down you do not run your car with the radiator dry or with the, without oil in the can- crankcase you do not if you you do not believe that the highest possible blood pressure the highest possible pulse rate is the way in which to run uh, a you know, human being. We keep these things under control, and when they're under control, you have a reasonably healthy functioning for a long period of, you know, a substantial period of time. This is true in economics as well. It is not a good idea to leave the financial sector to its own devices. If, that, if you do that, it will uh, rack up uh, profits in an internal competition as intent, as intensely and rapidly as it can. And the system as a whole will break down very quickly, which is what we've observed. So I think that metaphor tells you right away that the idea of efficient markets, that of operating without regulation, is like the is exactly the same notion as a nuclear reactor operating without coolant, with exactly the same sort of result.
1: Well, the contra argument, of course, which which got the efficient markets uh, to the foreground, well, the Soviet Union was a heavy regulated society. Uh, It stifled innovation. And uh, obviously, the more regulation they had there culminated in a total breakdown and lack of incentive in the system. So it was reasonable to conclude, I suppose, that lack of regulation away from the Soviet system would possibly have good effects and more good effects if you, you extended that analogy the other way.
2: Let's unpack the Soviet
1: metaphor. First of all, the Soviet Union, despite what people
2: think of it today, had an extremely robust scientific community. Uh, it had a very important aerospace industry, very important uh, nuclear power industry. Uh, it had uh, had the world's greatest mathematicians, who, when the Soviet Union collapsed, came to Wall Street and uh, proceeded to dist- help destroy the place in 25 years. Uh, so. Uh, we, it is historically incorrect to say that it was some kind of backward society. It was not. Uh, but what the Soviet Union was was a society that had been built up on a principle of gigantism industrially. It had been built up on the idea that you've got the world's largest steel mills, the world's largest automobile factories, the world's uh, greatest extents of, of production of meat and other other uh, uh, other major products, uh, and it was it lacked redundancy and it lacked resiliency. Uh, and so, for example, the transport network functioned very poorly, and there was a huge amount of waste. Fresh food didn't get into Moscow markets, for example, uh, and there was a very great dissatisfaction uh, with the way the system functioned. And that's what brought it to an end in the end. It wasn't that there was a need to have a balance between uh, a uh, let's say, decentralization and market presence. Uh, and a regulatory uh, system
1: well if we went back to look at uh the work of Keynes, and and in effect your your dad probably would have seconded that work uh Keynes basically said i can i can stabilize an unstable capitalist system by leaning against the wind and against tendencies that you've you've uh, discussed in the system that you can in effect patch it and keep it as a viable system you can keep the good and you can eliminate the bad with regulation, laws, and, and adroit management. Uh, do you believe the system inherently is unstable or is workable, with the the series of fixes, taxations, uh, regulations uh, that that you've discussed and we've discussed here?
2: Oh, I, I'm agnostic on on whether things can be stabilized in the long run, uh, but I it's, it's clear that if you uh, if you abandon the path of governance, you get radical instability in the short run, and that should be avoided. That's as far as you need to to go, really. Whether you can successfully solve problems in the long run, I think is beyond any of us to know.
1: Okay, well, and of course the the ultimate question is the the so-called realization problem that eventually monopoly builds up if you don't have enough regulation uh, to restrict the purchasing power and then cause calamity. And uh, I think there's another consensus that would say we can, we can prevent that build up by judicious regulation and in effect uh, keep the best of both worlds. I mean, a, a Georgist would probably say, well, if you tax away a monopoly and, and paid government expenses with that, uh, the system, if you separate the environmental issues, could probably run for a long period of time without too much of a, a problem. The environmental uh, uh, issues and problems are probably what's going to make the system have to face some real reality, and that's upon us, but I'll keep that separate from just the, 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 the discussion on the structure of the system itself. Yeah, well, the, George,
2: the George's position, as you know better than I, is really that taxation should fall on what the classical political economist identified as rent, and specifically on, on land, uh, and the the reason for that is uh, it really is rooted in the uh, in the economics of David Ricardo which is that they, if you tax rent then you're not distorting you're not discouraging private investment you're not taxing profit and you're not impoverishing labor because you're not taxing wages what you're doing is transferring a surplus which is produced out of the differential productivity or attractiveness or centrality of particular pieces of land from the nominal owner, who only owns the land because of a title granted by the state, to the public at large, and that enables one to have a rational allocation of those uh, resources or an allocation that is set by the community, uh, and that strikes me as a very profound and important insight. Uh, and one thing I, you know, I, I I picked up a few years ago, which, as I stayed with me very strongly, was the observation of a of a Chinese economist uh, that uh, if you look at the world economy which is most influenced by Henry George, it's China. Why is it China? Because there uh, the government took this uh, things a step further, not simply taxing the land, but simply owning it, which dispenses with the uh, with the problem of taxation altogether. The government collects the land rent, and this is at, usually at the municipal level or the provincial level. And as a result, uh, as the attractiveness and value of the properties go up, uh, the, uh, the government uh, is flush with funds with which it can improve the community. Uh, and if you travel to Shanghai, uh, you see the result of this, an enormous city absolutely flush with, with with roads and subways and trains and ports, and a country which now has 12,000 miles of high-speed rail that weren't there a decade ago, weren't there six years ago. Uh, quite extraordinary, but it's a, it is really the legacy, in a curious way, of Henry George.
1: Well, Henry George influenced China through Sun Yat-sen. Uh, it, directly, but but you know, in some sense, he's—we have an accidental test
2: of the uh, of the George hypothesis as a result of the fact that the Forty Nine Revolution in China was directed against landlords, uh, and so you ended up. I mean, that's not was not an attractive process in many ways, but. You end up with a a country where a large share of the productive land is publicly owned, and therefore there's really no need. It it simplifies taxation dramatically. You don't have to try and impose sales taxes on a lot of small vendors. Uh, You don't have to try and track everybody's income effectively. You've got a source of revenue which is uh, rooted in the fact that uh, anybody wants to use an office building in the Pudong New District has to pay the rent. End of story.
1: Well, we would we would extend that to some of the obvious monopolies outside of land. Uh, let's say uh, the internet, in some in some ways, creates a Google and a Facebook. You know, that have network externalities, first mover advantages, and they in effect become a, a quasi monopoly. That have, uh, you know, one one can make a much stronger
2: case for uh, Eric Schmidt or Mark Zuckerberg than you can for Charles and David Koch. That's uh, one. In one case, you have you have someone who's actually uh, brought to market something for which people are prepared to pay. Why they're prepared to pay is perhaps something left to the anthropologist, but they are. Uh, and in the other case, you have somebody who's sitting on a pile of mineral rights and simply charging what the market will bear. Uh, and that's those are two very different situations, which should be treated differently to a degree under the tax codes
1: we'll go back to the predator state kind of thing where where we're talking about in groups that can seize the high ground and extract uh, a profit and of course the Sanders uh, Clinton debate is uh, sort of in that vein where Bernie says that uh, all the money spent in politics essentially goes for influence and the influence is. Uh, n- narrowed into relatively few hands. He's picking Wall Street, for example, although there are military uh, contractors and many other people feeding at the trough, and um, the uh, the argument is, are they so entrenched that you really can't have any popular movements against that? The question, of course, is can you bring these groups to heel in in, in current days, uh, in, in, in current politics with PACs and and large amounts of money dictating and influencing elections. It's all well and good to say that we can can reform the system, we know what to do, but uh, let's say there's a group of people who just believe that they're entitled to feed at the trough.
2: Yeah, I think what you need to have is a political leadership that is uh, ethically committed not to go to work uh, for uh, the um, uh, for these interests after its service, that's the essential thing. If you brought into government people who were strongly independent, then you could have an appropriate relationship between the uh, regulatory power and the regulated institution. And
1: of course, uh, these uh, these people are, you know, who have these good jobs and influential jobs. Of uh, course, they tend to marry each other and uh, go to the same schools and. And build up networks that are that are self-reinforcing. So it's pretty hard to to break an entitled class with uh, with popular movements. We're getting a chance to see if that's even possible. I think today with with Trump and uh, uh, Hillary and and Sanders. I think the popular
2: the fact that there is a popular movement uh, tells you that the American people have educated themselves to a very large extent about this problem. Otherwise, there would not be a resonance in the voting public to what Bernie Sanders has been saying. But when you get to the business of governing, uh, as you mentioned earlier, it was under George H.W. Bush, and in fact earlier under Ronald Reagan, that career prosecutors in the Department of Justice, Federal Home Loan Bank Board, and other agencies went after the savings and loan crooks. They went after Michael Milken. They went after Charles Keating. They went after a thousand uh, insiders in that industry uh, and they brought them uh, to, to justice. And those people served time uh, in federal prison for, for that crisis, uh, for what they, what they had done, for crimes they'd committed uh, in, that led to that crisis. So there it is. it is. It is indeed possible, even under conservative administration, to have a professional uh, uh, and independent uh, regulatory force. What happened afterwards was that that professional and independent force was systematically dismantled, systematically, intentionally dismantled from the mid 1990s through the 2000s. And that is to say, both in the Clinton administration and in the Bush administration, it's extremely well documented. Uh, and the result was, see, you took the, it's like taking the coolant out of the reactor, it blew up. Uh, there's just no other way. I think believe that believe there are other ways. This is certainly the best way to
1: describe uh, the, uh, the result. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question. Of course, you're familiar with Anwar Shaikh. Have you read his book, Capitalism? <laughs> I have a copy of it. There is a
2: concise four or five line description of that book, uh, which tells you exactly what's in it and what the significance of the book is. And I wrote that, that that summary. So I'm proud to say, yes, I've read it. I read it from one end to the other. And it's one of the most remarkable books I've encountered in my entire professional life. I was absolutely thrilled to have it.
1: We, we heard that you you said that. Uh, he's a He's a remarkable man, a humble man. And I wanted to ask you, if you were going to change the syllabus of economics, Teaching young students, young undergrads, uh, how influential would this this new book be for you?
2: Oh, I, I I can tell you in a week or two because it's already on my syllabus for teaching uh, master students here at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a book which is it's beautifully written. Uh, it's a, a, from a pedagogical standpoint very clear. Uh, it is also very demanding. So we we will see. Uh, what the uh, uh, you know what what the relationship between the book and the reader eventually will be, but it really is an ex- it's an exceptional contribution. I was uh, as I say, it brings in uh, to the teaching of economics uh, all of the important traditions uh, that have been left out uh, by of the dumbed down textbooks that tend to be prevalent, uh, and it does so in a way which, if you work at it, you really can absorb and understand so and it does so in a way which is which is carefully respectful to the originators of these ideas so people you, you can go back and look to the to the sources you can, you can find Caldor and Pazanetti and Kaletsky and uh, and I suppose Henry George and everybody else who uh, needs to be understood in order to have a clear grasp on the intellect intellectually important strands of our subject. So, I, as again, my hat is off to Anwar Sheikh. I think he did an extraordinarily important job with that book.
1: Now, I have another question for you, which is unusual. In uh, reading, I think, one of your latest three books, there was a dedication to Luigi Passanetti. Yes. And I happen to think Luigi Passanetti is one of the greatest economists of all time. It just so happens to be, I think his, his work in structural dynamics is extraordinary. How did you happen to be influenced to come across him to the point where you dedicated a book to Luigi?
2: Well, I uh, won a Marshall scholarship to go to uh, King's College, the University of Cambridge in 1974. Uh, and Luigi Pasanetti was a lecturer, a reader, I guess, at, uh, at Cambridge at that time. So I attended his lectures. Uh, which uh, were, uh, as always through his career, a model of precision and clarity. Uh, and uh, over the years since, he moved to Milan uh, sometime after that, uh, we maintained contact. Uh, and I visited him uh, there in Milan and uh, sort of Lugano, uh, and uh, at a given moment, about six years ago, uh, uh, Luigi proposed me for membership in the uh, Accademia Nazionale di Lincei, the Italian National Academy, uh, and uh, successfully, to my astonishment. Uh, so we're now colleagues uh, in that rather uh, venerable institution. So I, I go to Italy and I, 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 I see him from time to time. I was also able to attend the uh, Fest Conference that was held in his honor in Cambridge a few years ago. Uh, and it just seems to me that. Uh, the, as I say, the clarity, the precision, uh, the elegance of Luigi's thinking uh, and the uh, the focus on the important distinction between uh, his views and the standard neoclassical view, all uh, commend him. I, I, I agree with you completely. He's one of the, I, I would rate him as the greatest, certainly living economic theorist. Uh, and one of the greatest of the of the second
1: half of the 20th century. I, I don't have any more questions for you. It was a fabulous, fabulous interview. Uh, you're a remarkable man. Your dad was remarkable. And if there's a royal family in economics, in the non-neoclassical tradition,
0: it's the Galbraiths. Thank you very much. I
1: appreciate that.
0: And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.